Hello, and welcome to another episode of Subject Matter Pros, brought to you by Branding and Promo. They're an amazing marketing company. I highly recommend them. Uh, check them out at brandingandpromo.com. So a little bit about myself. Um, I'm an entrepreneur, and I own and manage businesses in fields that are completely unrelated to my formal education, which is an undergrad in economics from McMaster and a master's in financial economics from the University of Toronto and Robin School of Management. I did, however, put these degrees to work for a little while, uh, during which time I worked in capital markets on Bay Street. As such, um, I've had the opportunity and privilege to know many individuals working in the industry across varying levels of seniority. So our guest today is almost a 20-year capital markets veteran. Uh, most recently, he was a global head of foreign exchange spot trading at TD Bank. It's my honor and pleasure to welcome our guest, Mr. Muhammad Ali. Thanks, Kunal. It's, it's great to be on. Nice. Uh, so first of all, sir, I uh, hope you and your family and everyone has been keeping well during this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Yes, we're, we're, we're doing our best to be safe as we all are, right? And just adjust, adjust life to the new normal, right? And there's been some, some, some tougher choices, but I think there's been a lot of good that's come out of it as well. That's nice, sir. It's good to hear. Uh, so the title of this podcast is Subject Matter Pros. Uh, you've spent almost two decades in this industry. And mm -hmm. what's amazingly impressive is that you've spent it with one single institution. So, uh, you know, you truly are a subject matter pro and uh, we're excited to have you. And thank you again for, you know, spending your Saturday afternoon with us. So uh, on that note, Mo, would you be kind enough just to, you know, tell some of our listeners a little bit about your background and then, uh, and then we'll get into, we'll get more into the podcast. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm uh, like what I like to think of as a global citizen. So I have literally lived uh, all over. I grew up in the Middle East. Uh, I'm originally from, from Pakistan. We immigrated to Canada when the 1990 war happened um, in uh, Iraq versus Kuwait. We were at Kuwait at the time. And yeah, just, you know, did my high school and university uh, training here in Canada. And then um, started with TD Bank right after I graduated uh, from uh, the University of Western uh, with an economics degree and started in the back office, uh, did a CFA and uh, shortly thereafter joined the trading floor uh, with TD and sort of never looked back until about two or three months ago when I took finally uh, sort of took an early retirement. Nice. And uh, how much, like, you know, you said you started off in the back office and then you finished your CFA. Um, you know, obviously the charter is very highly valued and uh, Toronto, interestingly, has the highest proportion of uh, charter holders per capita in the world. So obviously there's been a huge uptick in people applying for that and obtaining it. How much, how much, how valuable was it? when you took it and uh, what changes have you seen in it, you know, as people have come into the industry over time with that designation? Yeah. So on the CFA, I think it, it's, it's funny when I was doing it, I, I didn't really realize the benefits, you know, I, I didn't know where it would end up taking me. I just kind of knew that it offered the ability to continue to work. Right. Which I think in those early years, it's a big uh, opportunity cost to say, right, I'm gonna take time out and, and do an MBA or whatnot. So I have nothing but good things to say about the charter 
people that have done it and people that are doing it. It, it just allows for the flexibility. Um, it's, it's cost effective, right? Um, and the subjects that you cover are phenomenal. And I loved, uh, you know, and it probably sounds a little bit nerdy to say this, but I, I actually loved uh, studying for the CFA and I was sad when it was over. Um, I was able to apply it like throughout my career. Um, and actually, funny thing is, now that I've taken retirement and I'm looking to set up my own investment firm, as, as you know, um, I'm going to, and I want to kind of go back to my roots as a chartered financial analyst and analyze companies and, and like look at the equity market more. Whereas when I was in the banking, I was more fixed income and FX. So it's like, yeah, I have a CFA, you know, I've got the tools to be able to do that analysis. I can make the case to my investors that look, you can trust me with your money. Like it still holds its, its water. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's phenomenal for me to think like 20 years after I did it, that actually I'm gonna, I need it more now than I did 20 years ago. So yeah, like, I hope that answers your question, but yeah, just to give you some context around what my, my perspective is on the charter. That's nice. Good to hear that. You know, it's still strong. And like for someone like me, it motivates me because I've completed two levels. Uh, I still have my third one to go. And then again, like right, okay. I transitioned away from finance. So as a result, you know, I sort of put it on the back burner, but uh, no, thank yeah. you for sharing with me that, you know, even down the line, there's good value to it. Uh, no. Yeah. Like Mo, you did spend time at, um, you know, at TD in their London offices and then in their Toronto offices um, and a few different desks. So which ones did you find, uh, you know, that you enjoyed working at most? Because uh, obviously you've done some work in interest rates and then also FX. So which ones did yeah. you like more? And between the two cities, how would you describe the differences in working in the capital markets culture and such between London and Toronto? Sure. Uh, these are great questions. Um, the, the desk that I uh, enjoyed the most, and partially it was because of the timing of it as well, um, which was like during the European financial crisis, uh, which was shortly after like the US financial crisis in 08. So we're talking like 2010, 2011. You know, if you remember, that's when Europe's existence was being called into question and, and all the Greece and Italy and all of that. So I ended up, I was on the, what we call the short-term interest rate trading desk, um, which is really like, the way I look at it, it's really like a, a, a macro trading desk. In fact, those desks now in banks like RBC, uh, they call them macro trading desks. Um, and really, because I did my undergrad in macroeconomics, like that's my field. And that was the most fun because you really get a chance to trade like all products, right? Uh, bonds, FX, uh, short-term uh, uh, debt products. And you get to see the market from a perspective which, which a lot of people really don't get to see. And it's really unique to being on a short-term desk at a bank, which is the piping of the economy, you know? And it's really the part of the economy that the central bank directly uh, um, controls. And so you really got an insight that in a crisis, how does the central bank actually get things moving again? 
Um, and to be able to observe that and trade that uh, while being in London uh, was just a phenomenal experience. And that kind of brings me to your second question, which was like London, Toronto. Um, my experience of the 15 years trading in London, like you, you can't replicate that, right? It's, you know, forget about, you know, which city has the better restaurants and, and all of that. Right. And we can, and I, and Toronto is, 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 is really pulling its weight now, uh, since I've relocated back on that front, but London just has the time zone advantage, right? Yes. You are literally in between Asia and North America and in the middle of Europe. So that trading day, you know, you can't re replicate that. No, you have three books you can communicate with lifetime. You, you, you can, and you come in in the morning and you got the European figures coming out and you get an insight to how Asia closed. And then your afternoon is like morning in New York, yes. right? And then all the US. So when you go home as a trader at 6 p.m. in London, like you really feel like you're on top of like what's going on in the world, right? So that, that's amazing. Um, and I can't uh, replicate that. What I would say though, is having moved back to Toronto and now trading like North American markets, one thing that you do miss out in Europe is really understanding the US and Canadian economies and the opportunities that they provide. Uh, and the US is the largest economy in the world, right? So you, you're so much closer to it sitting here in Toronto and there's a ton of opportunities there too. And that's really been what's open, opening my eyes in the last couple of years or so. No, and you know, the last point you brought up uh, is so true that even when you read news media, right, you know, like Financial Times or even large publications like that, they have geographical themed versions and editions. And just the amount of information that one has to process is so vast that if you're focusing on Europe, for example, it's not possible really to have the same pulse on in North America and in Asia That's and right. conversely in other parts. So hundred percent is challenging. And, and even the way they present information. So it's interesting, uh, you know, with all the recent protests going on in the United States, um, I was just obviously news media in North America is going to show us things in a different way because it's taking place on our soil. Uh, but I just wanted to get a feel for how the rest of the world perceived this. And interest, and you know, more so like how China thought about this, given the recent political and economic spats going on between the two countries. So mm -hmm. I actually researched uh, just some Google and you know, and Google some um, Chinese publications on the way they presented American crises, and it was vastly different than the way it's presented here, and just the amount of content and information available for any user. Absolutely, and and just the ability to. You know, in those moments, like when all the all those protests are going on and you're being impacted by the news. But if you're, you know, you're sitting here, you can talk to people directly in the U.S. And you can be like, well, what is going actually going on? You know, and you're and then you get you get like that unadulterated perspective, um, which is a lot easier being, you know, physically closer. For sure. All right, sir. So let's steer the conversation a little bit to, um, you know, obviously what's going on around us and the first big thing in our economy right now, which is COVID-19 and how yeah. uh, it's impacted everything. So obviously trading 
floors have been greatly impacted by this, um, you know, with the closure of all offices and such. So how has COVID-19 impacted the, I know like obviously just from, um, you know, from your knowledge and understanding of the place, um, how has it impacted the trade floor and uh, what changes have you heard about or seen on the trading floor? Yeah. So, so as you aware, I, I don't have firsthand knowledge uh, uh, because I left the TD trading floor just before all of this happened. But obviously I have tons of conversations with, with my network. So I have a feel pretty good feel uh, of how it is impacted. So many trading floors uh, in on Bay street are, you know, uh, essentially, uh, running at maybe 30 or 40% capacity, right? So there, there are people on the trading floor, um, even now, but they're distanced. Um, they probably tend to be maybe more senior people, um, uh, that are on the, that are, that are sitting there, but a lot of the traders and sales are working from home. Um, and from what I hear by and large, that has worked, uh, almost seamlessly. Um, you know, the, I think the banks have done a good job in getting people technically set up in their homes. They've quickly got the technology to where it needs to be. Um, the ability for like traders and sales to have like chat rooms uh, via Bloomberg and things like that. It just, it, and, and uh, WebEx and, and Zoom and all of that. You can like mimic uh, the office environment uh, pretty easily. Um, from the comfort of your home. And from what I understand, performance hasn't really been impacted um, and neither really have the relationships um, um, as a result of it. So, you know, then it's really about, it, I think it, go, it boils down to like employee satisfaction, right? Because from a bank's perspective, long-term, they could look at the situation and be like, well, this is actually cheaper to run, right? Uh, like this, we don't, we, we like it like this, but the employee could be saying, well, hold on a moment. Like I want to come back to work uh, because of X, Y, and Z. Um, you know, they may have personal reasons or, or, or their accommodation is, is not suitable. Uh, I had a story from a buddy of mine who, who had, who got chased into his uh, bathtub because he was having a conversation with a client and his baby uh, son was like chasing him and he was like backing himself up into his bathtub. Right. I and love it. right. And, and you know, when he told me that story, I was like, okay, you know what? It's not sustainable. Right. Like yes. this. Yeah. Like at some point people are need to going to need to come back like onto the floor. And I think that they're having conversations now around how to get people back onto the trading floor and it'll be like a phased approach, right? Maybe people put their hand up, like I want to come back and then, yeah, they're going to have to do all the COVID measures, right? Like, you know, uh, lineups at the elevators, socially distance in the offices, all the wipes and, and whatnot. Will it get back to a hundred percent? Probably not. Uh, but can it back, get back to, 60, 70% of what it used to be, it's, it's, it's conceivable, right? And you think it's to get to that level, like let's say if the government, um, you know, recommended or put plans in place saying, hey, it's okay to open up, you think they could do that in the same rapid uh, pace that they 
moved everyone off, you know, and moved everyone off site to work from home? No, I, I think that I think they don't need to do it in, in a rapid way, right? Like it's already if you look at it from if you look at it from the bank's perspective, it's already working, right? They were rapid to move people off because it wasn't working, right? Like it was dangerous, and so business uh, was had to be stopped. So they had incentive to make it rapid to get people off, but now that people are off, it's working. So, you know, why should they have a rapid return and take all this risk? They'd rather have a gradual transition approach. Uh, you know, bring a few people back, see how it works. Bring a few people back, see how it works, right? That's excellent. No, thank you for sharing that. I never thought about yeah. it that way. So, yeah. yeah. Well, sir, um, so, you know, obviously you've shared um, that during when you spent time in London and uh, the European crisis was taking place, like you were saying with the yeah. pigs and such. Um, and, you know, just given your tenure, you've had the opportunity to experience a few different uh, points during, you know, when crises have happened. So how would you compare, you know, just the differences in, um, you know, how, because of course now you have technological improvements and enhancements, completely different political regimes and so many other factors that impact how each crisis was different, but from on from a trade floor perspective, uh, you know, how would you compare like, you know, for many memories you have of when the tech bubble burst or, you know, when the great recession happened from the mortgage backed crisis, the European crisis that took place, uh, you know, what kind of differences did you notice? Yeah, it's, it's another good question. Um, and I did have a think about this one. Um, it, I think there's two, there's two, um, main differences, right? One is that just, I think because of uh, either, either it's because of technology or just our advancement as like human beings uh, or, or, or whatever, everything just seems to be happening much faster, right? So, you know, those previous financial crises, you know, they, they take, you know, time to build up and then, and then the crisis happens and then, and then it takes time to respond and, and then it takes time to recover. And, and there's a process, right? Like with COVID and the crisis, it's just so rapid. Like, oh, boom, it happened. Okay, we melt down and then the crisis response comes and like now we're recovering. Like the whole thing, it does not take years to happen. Uh, like the financial crisis. It's, we're talking like months here, right? So just the speed of everything, the adjustment, the response, the occurrence of the crisis, I think that's one key difference uh, between now and previous financial crises. And I think that's really caught people off guard where you would have financial market participants kind of have their time to adjust and, and then maybe like even take advantage or, or reorient their business or whatever. Just the pressure on a market, on the market to adjust rapidly, right? So the speed is one key difference um, with this crisis. The other, uh, key difference, which I think is, is really important for people to understand and like frame in their mind, 
like those crises that you talk about, like pigs and the MBS and the tech, right? There were inherent imbalances being built up in the economy. Like yes, they're man-made. Were, right, yes, right. Over a period of time, like you mentioned earlier. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Yes. People, people were making some bad decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, people were taking on some bad risk. People were over leveraging themselves. People greed. were greed. Yeah. People were paying silly prices for, for, for whether it was like a, a tech stock or a mortgage backed security or, or like a Greek bond. Like it just didn't make sense. Okay. So, you know, but this is not because people have made poor decisions, right? Or because there have been imbalances in the system. This is like, for lack of a better term, it's an act of God, right? Yes. Uh, or like a phenomenon, right? Which is brought about the crisis. So the reason why it's uh, important to make the difference is that in those crises, when governments and central banks reacted uh, to the crisis, okay? And in fact, I answered my own question as to why it's this adjustment has been so rapid. In those crises when they happened, central banks and governments were more reluctant to, to respond because they were like, you know, we need the system to clear the excess. So yes. people have made mistakes, like let them learn, you know? Except for any but, systemic failures, let's, uh, let's have a normal market adjustment to this. Yeah, like let it, let it get cleared out, right? But this time, governments and central banks have, I think, rightfully acted quickly because it's not by and large anybody's fault, right? That like a, an amazing restaurant, now all of a sudden is about to go bust, right? It's not that person's fault. They, they, they made all the right financial decisions, the right branding, right number of employees. It's not like the guy over leveraged himself. The government just, just said like, you're shut down. Government just shut down. So, so, so I think this crisis is very different to those in that respect, in the sense that it's not as, uh, as it's not in response, it's not happening because people made a bunch of poor financial decisions. And therefore it's, it's, it's right that governments and central banks have acted with the speed that they have. Nice. And then relating to the markets, obviously, you know, because of this crisis, we've seen extreme volatility, just given how much of a crash happened and then all the recoveries and then seeing recovery and rally last week, followed by a huge decline again the other day. Um, so obviously, you know, volatility can be a trader's best friend. Uh, but so what are your views on, you know, where the marketplace is headed and, you know, anytime, when do you think this volatility level will be a little bit more normalized or, you know, what's more accepted in the marketplace? Yeah. So volatility, it's funny, volatility is always one of those hot topics uh, in markets and like, is it good? Is it bad? Right? Uh, do we need it? Do we not need it? There's volatility in the market. Um, and there's times when there's volatility and there's times when there isn't volatility. I think generally um, we're sophisticated enough now, uh, whether you're a portfolio manager or, or a trader at an institution, you know, right, these strategies work in low volatility environments. These strategies work in high volatility environments and, and, and you can adjust. I think one interesting fact, which, which you may or may not know, is, is as soon as the COVID-19 hit, 
and and you had all the volatility in financial markets there was like a rapid uh opening up of like new trading accounts at brokerages yeah. and and in fact even last week like on CNBC you know they talk about the rise of the day trader and 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 all of that stuff and 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 they're buying when like the big investors are selling and 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 there's a lot of there's a lot of individuals out there that are you know maybe pounding their chest on on what they're being able to achieve financially uh in the markets i'm sure there's a host of war stories out there as well right so you know what i will say uh to like to traders or 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 volatility at the moment i think it's a, it is a great market to be investing in you know uh and you if you come at it from that perspective right you know there are good businesses out there that have been sold for for you know panic reasons but over the long term they'll be fine you Fundamentally, know? there's nothing wrong with them. It's just a market overreaction to, and then a sell-off resulting from that, it. That's right. And of course, the governments and central banks are are intervening. So actually, you know, there's a there's room, you know, and this goes back to our CFA stuff. You know, there's there's room for some good analysis. You know, just pick up a company you like, like look at look up their income statement and balance sheet uh, on the internet. Listen to a couple of their previous earnings calls. You know, yes. you know, look at their chart on Yahoo Finance and make a make a make a nice decision. You know, and and the market will reward you for that. And and it's it's exactly the kind of stuff we should we should be doing, right? So so I think there's opportunities in the market. The volatility uh, means that you take smaller positions than you normally would, right? Because you you get in ahead of yourself and then and then you get yourself in the trouble. So just adjust your position sizes, try to hold things a little bit longer, be a little bit longer term in your perspective. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's tons of opportunities out there. And you know, uh, as market participants, we can do our part to, to get, the, get the economy uh, going again. No, that's some excellent guidance, sir. Thank you very much. Um, now, Mohammed, we're going to steer the direction in a slightly little different direction. Um, and yeah. this is relating to the second big thing that's happening uh, in the United States right now, and that's surrounding the Black Lives Matter movement and, you know, how yeah. the movement effectively is trying to raise awareness of, you know, that there's visible uh, and noticeable inequality in treatment of minorities and colored individuals compared to white folks um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, basically yeah. the issue being diversity and the unacceptance of diversity in society. So, you know, capital, like capital markets, um, for better or for worse, you know, could be a good sort of, we, we've seen a huge transition and development in capital markets. So, um, you know, what, how have you seen diversity change in capital markets, you know, acceptance of more women in capital markets? I know in Canada, there's actually a group called Women in Capital Markets uh, where they try to encourage and, uh, you know, work together because obviously it's a very challenging career and profession to be in when you're, when you're juggling uh, family life, professional life, and a few other things together. So what kind of changes have you seen in terms of diversity, inclusion, uh, you know, elimination of the gender bias? in capital markets over your career? Sure. Um, so actually, um, I was a, the co-chair of TD's Visible Minority um, 
counsel for uh, TD Securities uh, just before I left. And it's funny, uh, as I was making the decision to, to, to retire early, one of the things that was holding me back was, was that I would have to give up that um, because I was just getting warmed up and I was really finding it rewarding. Um, so I do, I do have some perspectives though to share. Um, so yeah, I think what I would say is, uh, and you touched on the women in capital markets uh, piece. I think the way you have to look at it is that, um, you know, getting female representation in the workplace and getting them uh, fairly paid, uh, I think that was like really top of mind, right? And, and to a certain degree, um, they were like ahead of the curve and everybody's awareness uh, was ahead of the curve. And they've been able to do some phenomenal things, right? And they've been able to make really uh, uh, big moves uh, in, in terms of their representation, fair pay, seniority, et cetera. There's still a lot more work to do, uh, but there is with any initiative, right? You're never, you're never done. But they did a great, yeah, they, they, did a, they did a great job. And, you know, now I think the focus um, is shifting a little bit or, or not shifting, but like, you know, firms need to add to their uh, awareness, which is on the VisMin side. I think on the visible minority, like, you know, you've got to kind of break it up into your mind, right? Like in terms of, well, who, who are we talking about? So like, if you talk about like, you know, uh, South Asians or 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 uh, Oriental, right? Then you know probably we're we we're we've done a good job overall as an industry uh, in having representation there. Um, but it's really on on the black community where um, there's a lot of work to be done. And in fact, just before I left, um, it, it, TD. Uh, was was actually one of the uh, uh, firms I believe that really understood that this was something that they need to focus on, and that was coming right from the bank, right? So even before all of this, I think they were on aware that more work needs to be done here, right? And 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 there is, and uh, and you know if you look at what happened in the U.S. Uh, a couple weeks ago, you know as sad as it was. It, it really could be the spark, right? That was needed uh, to get this awareness really embedded in people's minds. And like, the level at which it took off, yes. Having yeah. these influencers, everyone really speaking up and holding themselves and everyone around them accountable for an issue such as this. Yeah, like this is an issue, you know? And and like we need to pay attention. So So I think if you look at it from the initiative's perspective, it could kickstart like a momentum, uh, which is, which has been much needed for them. So I think they can learn from some of the experiences of other visible minority growth. Uh, and then from like the woman experience, and then they'll take some of their unique, uh, insights as well and, and build. And it's really about conversation, it's about awareness and it's about uh, the uh, black individual um, within the corporation or within the environment that they're in really becoming more and more self-assured of themselves, right? 
and communicating and expressing themselves, right? And, and like, you know, so that's for them as well to take on and just go for it. And it'll happen. It'll happen. And, and, and maybe this was the spark that we needed. Yeah, and like, you know, what in Canada, we're a little bit luckier where it's not that big an issue. I have a very good friend, uh, he's black. And he's a director on the trade floor at a Canadian bank. So, you know, obviously there is representation, but it's good to see, you know, how the Southeast Asian community and the Oriental communities have set a good sort of path of, you know, how it is. And then the black community can take that and tailor it to their individual needs and see how to take it. Absolutely. Um, And now, you know, obviously, so like talking about recruiting, um, I know capital markets recruiting with just how much technology has come in and with a lot of algorithmic trading and other uh, just, you know, automation and AI and such coming in, uh, there's been a huge decline in hiring in capital markets, especially on the trading floor. So I have a good friend who works at another bank and he was telling me that he's an equity trader and uh, he was hired about seven or eight years ago, I think. And he was the last trader hired on his desk. So obviously, you know, eight years is a long timeline to be at a desk in trading and being the last one to be hired is obviously scary. So what kind of, uh, you know, prospects do you see going forward for the up and coming guys or like, you know, new hires want to enter capital markets in general. Yeah. Um, so uh, I would say like from what I saw, um, the trading, the, the hiring, uh, like even if I look at my business, um, my hiring of, of traders was, was pretty similar throughout um, it's just the kind of people we were hiring. So, you know, uh, banks uh, have been hiring a lot more electronic traders and quantitative uh, analysts, right? As opposed to like your, uh, you know, your your typical like old school, uh, you know, voice trader, yes. um, right? Um, so that has been the shift because banks are, you know, their clients want to trade digitally. Their clients want to trade electronically. Their clients want to trade seamlessly. And, and they're trying to deliver technology to their clients, like, like, like any business out there. So, you know, in order to do that, you got to have people that understand the technology, right? So it's, it's, it's become a lot more tech. So if you're, a, if you're somebody that's aspiring to be at a bank in capital markets, you're really going to have to bring that tech uh, piece to your repertoire uh, and, you know, programming, coding, um, you know, quantitative trading strategies like uh, infrastructure, you know, tech infrastructure, uh, technology uh, solution delivery, because like, you know, banks aren't set up like tech companies. So it's not, it's not, as easy for them to deliver tech solutions like it is for Amazon or Apple or Google, right? But believe me, banks will get as good at it, right? But it's just about having people that know how to help them deliver quickly. So, so you know, that's, you know, if you're thinking about a bank and, you know, how to orient yourself, I think that's where they, they need help. I also think, though, that, like, banks have also experienced during the COVID crisis that, in times of crisis, like you need traders with experience, yes. like, right. You need those, those men and women who have seen those times before to manage those billions of dollars in balance sheet. 
uh, and you want to have that confidence. So there will always be a demand for that experienced uh, trader that can make those decisions in, in, in stressful times. Um, but yeah, the caliber expected from individuals like that will just go higher and, and higher and higher. Um, and, and really, uh, I, I see, I see a, a lot of opportunity like on the buy side, you know, uh, asset management firms like hedge funds, um, you know, things like that because transaction costs are, are going down and there's trillions of dollars of capital in the system. In fact, and there's more coming in every day as central banks are pumping money in the system. That money needs to earn a return, yes. right? Right? That money needs to earn. So who's going to allocate the capital? Right? Okay, you can have robo advisors do it, but you know they can also uh, melt down during crisis. So you know there is enough money out there for for everybody. Uh, so capital allocation you know, which is, which happens on the buy side, I think they will continue to grow in, in their relevance and there'll be some fantastic opportunities for people on that side. I think I had to go and get my, uh, complete my third level of the CFA. <laughs> yeah, you're getting pumped up. You're getting pumped up. <laughs> Anyways, Mohammed, thank you so much for uh, joining us this afternoon. We greatly appreciate your time and sharing all your experiences and expertise and insights with all our listeners. Uh, we hope to have you back uh, on our show in the future, sir. Uh, good luck to you in your new venture and uh, have a wonderful rest of the day. It was, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure being on. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Thanks, Mohammed. Have a great day. And, uh, Bye. Thanks. And uh, to all our listeners, thank you for listening in today and for your support. Uh, if you or anyone you know would like to be on this podcast or if there are any topics that you would like to hear more about, please drop us a line by visiting our website at subjectmatterpros.com. Uh, once again, thank you to our sponsor, Branding and Promo. Check them out at brandingandpromo.com. Until the next episode.